0: and we have been to the 86th floor of the Freedom Tower, because mm-hmm. I've of my wow. We have lunch at the 64th floor. Mm-hmm. We've been to the Statue of Liberty. I've been in the crown of the Statue of Liberty. Okay. Emmett's been there twice. I'm like so strung out in New York right now. <laughs> but, um, we still have the way to the pedicure now. Mm-hmm. So where to begin? Um, Yeah, so thank you for the introduction. I don't like to talk too much about myself, but my name is Dave Smith, and I've been practicing Dharma for 25 years or so. Um, I was recently, where I'm from, which is Western Massachusetts, Northampton area. I grew up about 40 minutes west of Insight Meditation Society, which is kind of the birth of all this insight tradition. And was with my friend uh, Hanuman Goldman, one of my childhood friends, Father Daniel Goldman, probably many of you know as the emotional intelligence writer. So I had to hang out with his mom and his family, which are kind of my Dharma family. And so I've been having all of this reminiscent this memory, and mostly good. Um, and so it's really just kind of nice, uh, really tomorrow, a nice way to end the trip to get to come to New York inside and teach a little bit. Um, and so, um, you know, I've had varying degrees of success with this practice. Um, I like to say, sort of as a disclaimer, uh, I do consider myself a Dharma practitioner, uh, really from the insight tradition, from the Theravada tradition, which is really the tradition I mostly know. I'm also a long-term recovery for drugs and alcohol. Uh, and the 12 steps have been a big, big part of my practice. So I found it to be very, very helpful. I also found it to be limited. I'm also a survivor of complex trauma, and I have lived with symptoms of post-traumatic stress for most of my life. Uh, I'm happy to say now I don't experience a whole lot of that anymore. Um, so, I've really suffered really very well, for got a PhD in suffering, uh, which I'm happy about. And I generally find most people who end up in a place like this didn't come here because shit went
1: well.
0: <laughs> <coughs> so maybe that's your story, but probably not. But this is a, a practice that we, 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 we understand and we come into contact with our, with really our humanness. Just the, the vulnerability of our heart, of our emotions, and just
1: how beat
0: up we get on the inside along the way. And um, and how lonely you feel in that. And how isolated we feeling that. Now we can feel like am I the only one and having this like horrible experience? Everybody else seems fine. Although I really pretending like they're fine, and they're not, and you don't guess. Uh, it. And to be, uh, for those of us, you know, we come to the Dharma a lot of times, for me it was a huge, huge transformation of just like, somebody actually figured this out. Somebody actually is acknowledging the very honest way that life is hard, and that, you know, and it, it just is hard, it's not like my fault, I didn't do anything wrong, it's not like I'm bad at life, um, and we have this rich 2,500 year old tradition of really training our way out of this dilemma, um, really by coming to understand the mind, the body, the heart, the emotions, all of it. And I found it. if it, 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 it doesn't get easier, it just kind of gets weird. You know, I, I sometimes am just like, I don't know if I like, maybe I should have been at Christmas or something. This is just too much work, you know, and then overcoming things. And just the resilience that I've experienced as a result of practices. just this ongoing ability to overcome challenges. And really, to just be honest about my humanity in a very real way. And being able to share that with other people has been so relieving. So yeah, I'm really happy to be here. So usually what I'll do is I'll start with practice. Um, we have a 90-minute class. So I'm actually glad we have a few time And so the practice we'll do tonight, i like to be a little bit clear about uh, Specific practices, as you know, in this tradition we have insight meditation, which really comes from vipassana, insight, is kind of the same thing, and that's really kind of the primary practice that we come into contact with. But many of us actually mostly know this now as mindfulness. We could loosely say mindfulness, vipassana, insight, mostly the same thing. And so we come into the practice this way, so that's the way that I'll teach it. But I also do want to make a big emphasis, and as a teacher, I make a very big emphasis on what's classically known as the Brahmaviharas. Really, what I just call heart practices. They call them the four immeasurable in, in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. But really, this uh, practice of cultivating the heart, and you know, so practice of meta loving kindness, having a kind and friendly attitude to ourselves and our emotions and our inner life. I don't know what you, but when I started meditating, my mind was not kind <laughs> to me at all. Still, actually, it's so much, Compassion, which is kind of a buzzword now, uh, empathy, compassion, this radical practice to actually feel into what hurts and care. Yeah. so easy to say, your pain with compassion, but have you tried it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. it's really hard. And Mudita, the way that I translate Mudita now that makes the most sense to me, and I've come to understand it through my colleague uh, language training, is really gratitude. I actually, thinking about uh, mindfulness as a gratitude practice. The cultivation of, of recognizing the goodness in yourself and in the world, and appreciating that, and seeing that with gratitude, and not taking things for granted so That's hard. That's very really hard. I have a six-year-old and we talk about this all the time because said, you know, my six-year-old is a white boy living in America. Like he's doing better than 99 percent of the people on the planet. And it's like, we walk down the Statue of Liberty tower of the day. He's like, well, when are we going up again? I'm like, well, you know, we went up and that's kind of it. He's like, he's having a meltdown because we can't go back up. I'm like, dude, we just got down. <laughs> it was like, he's my greatest teacher, because he's just like. Everything assumes over oh, it more and more and more. It's a little six-year-old craving machine, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know. It's just like it, 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 it's just he can't. It's not like he means to do it. It's just the way the system operates. So we talked about gratitude a lot now, and cultivating gratitude on purpose, and then equanimity, big word. We're really understanding that uh, that. The life, the life that we live is a, is a game of tragedy and beauty in every single moment, birth, old age, success, and death. That, that both are always true. In every moment, you can see the beauty in, in this moment, you can see the joy, or you can see the suffering. And to actually understand that that's kind of a choice is a fairly radical idea of think. i will talk more this evening one of the things that we really want to cultivate around emotion is, is, is choice. Being able to choose what we do, what we say, how we think, how we see things. Being able to choose your attitude. Did you know that you have actual agency over your attitude? If you can put down the external circumstances for a moment or two. Like, oh, I hear I, yeah, this I, I should be now. Should be angry. It shouldn't be like this. That's like the Buddhist equation for suffering. This should not be happening right now. Have you ever had a moment where you thought that this shouldn't be happening right now? 14 happens today? So that's a big setup, but really what what I'm I'm talking about is inside practice the cultivation of the four foundations of mindfulness and the heart practices at the same time on purpose, which is a practice that I learned from my primary teacher, uh, which comes from a Buddhist Burmese Sayadaw uh, which is called Metta So it's not just this dry Vipassana kind of seeing mind moment, but actually seeing what's happening and then actually cultivating an attitude towards that attitude. Otherwise, it gets really clinical and it gets dry. There's so much focus, I think, in the, in the, 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 especially in the mindfulness world around the object that we pay attention to. The breath, the body, the feeling, the the chip, the the dhamma But we oftentimes miss, what is the attitude in which I view that object? Right, so like Buddhist Psychology 101, the mind operates. An object arises, we identify the object, and then we have a relationship to the object. We like the object, we don't like the object. We want to have the object, we want to get rid of the object. We feel shame for wanting the object. We feel entitled to have the object. We feel a whole range of ways towards objects. And the thing that blows my mind is none of the qualities are in the object. Right? The pleasant feeling is not in the delicious mango. It's not in the mango. It's in your experience of the mango. And that's true for everything that arises in your mind. That's crazy, right? (laughs) But isn't that right? Right? So as we start to practice and we see what arises in the mind-body system, I don't know about you, but a lot of what arises in my mind-body system, I don't really want it. I don't like it. <laughs> I want something else to arise. <laughs> but, that, that, but even that, I, I'm already, I'm dead in the water already right now because I, that's my attitude. So to kind of keep it simple for those of you who are not familiar with practicing this way, I'll, I'll give you a little bit of, of a setup. It, 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 in traditional Inside practice, one of the things that we try to see uh, is, is the three characteristics. We try to see the prominence of each other. We try to see that things are constantly changing, right? And then we see that things are inherently unsatisfying, the difficult, sort of, doesn't fit quite right. And then the big dilemma of the self or not-self. But regardless of whether they're the self or there's a not-self, I experience Dave Smith very often. Uh, I can't seem to get away from that. So, it's more important that I have a kind and friendly relationship to these two characteristics whether I can see them or not. So, can I be at ease with change? That's the spirit of magic to be at ease with. Are you at ease when you're confronted with change? Are you like, oh, well, things are changing for me right now. I no longer have a job. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I just actually lost my job I'm actually quite happy about. Uh, um, yeah, it's like we don't we don't have that. We can recognize it but we don't have that that method quality with same with Duke and do we remember countering pain or loss or difficulty? Are we at ease with that? Are we okay with that? Can we have compassion for that? Can we can we be in that field of experience in a way, that's relation. And one thing that I've learned, who to, took me a long time to learn, quite painful, is to whole anatta, self-not-self. Self. Regardless of all of the philosophical ways, the psychological ways that you view on that, what matters most is that you have a friendly relationship. That will, if you can do that, all this self-not-self business sort of becomes irrelevant. What kind of relationship do you have with yourself? And so when we practice what we'll try to cultivate method towards these three qualities, these three characteristics, and just sort of see how that goes. So the object becomes an Nietzsche, the object of practice becomes to view change, to be at ease with that be at ease with anything about the experience that feels not quite right. Or to be at ease with any part of this experience that has a large charge of you. And I notice that when I track my experience, there's moments where there's a lot of me. And there's moments where there's very... The, the volume of, of the self, is a, it's, a, it's not a switch on or off, it's a volume, right? A little bit of me in the mix. I actually like it when there's just a little bit of me in the mix. I do pretty good when there's just a little bit of me in the mix. But if it's like gave at 9 or final cap of eight goes to 11, so, <laughs> it's bad news. And actually, I'll talk about this later, a lot of that has to do with emotion. We take our emotions very, very close to So we'll sit for maybe about 30 minutes and do this practice. With us. you for your practice this evening. Uh, I always like to take questions uh, after the practice. I find the best meditation questions come after meditation. So before we get into the talk this evening, does anybody have any questions about that particular practice or uh, maybe working with some of the things that you can recognize about practicing in that way?
2: Easy,
0: right? Oh, easy. Just do that all the time.
3: <laughs> Everything will work out. I know my instructions are not that good. Somebody must have a question. You had one here just now. I don't know where this, this question just came to me when I was. Um. I don't even know it's related. What's the, is there a connection between OCD and addiction?
0: Is there a connection between OCD and addiction?
1: Yeah.
0: I think there might be some. It, it, of course, nobody knows the answers to these questions, unfortunately, although our culture will try to diagnose them. Some people would say that OCD is a type of addiction because of, because of the huge element of control. And addiction usually is, to some degree, about some form of control. Um, and the, the, and I'm, I have some clinical training, but I'm not a licensed therapist, but um, there's also a big spectrum of OCD. There's OCD on the level where people can use like medication practices and do some therapy and can kind of manage it. And then there's levels of OCD that people do need medication and, treatment and stuff. So, so that that term, OCD, it hits a pretty big range, but um, it could be seen as a type of addiction because of the control on yeah. Yes, please, over here. Um, for someone who who has
4: oh okay um for someone who doesn't know where to start with self compassion when you know when we're doing the meditation,
0: I'm just kind of i don't know I need some baby steps or something uh to to start knowing where to where to go yeah but yeah, self-compassion is a loaded word. Probably not the best place to start. Like, and it, it, it's not a light topic, right? Self-compassion is like, are uh, programs for it to practice before. I actually find uh, that if we look at the Brahma Vihar, the heart practice has kind of a foundational training. I think it's always best to start with a kind, a self-kindness practice. Where it's just kind of like some, maybe even something as simple as self-acceptance or patience with yourself, or just a kind of, like, good enough attitude about yourself. I think it's a baby step kind of the way. The people that I work with in my mentoring program, I have people alternate mindfulness and meta practice every day. And many people, for over, you know, three to six months, they actually start to make a shift. It doesn't take that long. The thing about meta practices that I find very interesting is, generally speaking, nobody's doing that. You know, you go on a retreat and they do a mecca at 4 o'clock in the afternoon. And, you know, if you look at the, and I love IMF and Spirit Rock, I'm not trying to be derogatory, but if you look at their schedule, they have 90% of the retreats are mindfulness and 10 maybe are heart practices. So we've we kind of doubled down on the mindfulness box. And we're just sitting here hating ourselves and mindfulness of that. And, so. and i like,
1: how long do I have to do this?
0: you know so you know it's really just a, you know the really thing is to just start doing it five or ten minutes a day if you don't do it you will get no benefit from it even if you agree with it you're like oh yeah that method sounds pretty good i can do it but it sounds good. and that's kind of how it goes you know so i think it's just to um see as it. it's not it's not mindfulness or meta i really see as. Mutually beneficial, but if you're kind of having a hard time in that area, I would say put the self-compassion on hold Because actually doing a meditation for yourself is an act of self-compassion Coming to a, any meditation is actually an act of self-compassion in and of itself But don't go for the big material right out of the gate Don't be like I'm gonna forgive my dad for all the horrible shit he did when I was a kid It's like don't start that <laughs> You know, we always want to go, we always want to box Mike Tyson right at the beginning. You know, so I think it's, it, it, it's a good place to start is, is to keep it simple and, and, and to go with that kind of benevolent attitude towards yourself. And, and if you follow that trail of breadcrumbs, right you, you'll end up where you need to go.
5: Alright, I'm, what I'm about to ask could be its own probably day-long discussion, but wow, there's really a, a spot where you start to hear things in this mic. Um, what's your first reaction when somebody mentions chronic pain that they're experiencing, like chronic physical pain that they're not able to really do much about um, in the sense that like, th- whatever you're going through can so easily become this self-deprecating, self-hate kind of thing and turning those thoughts around about what you're going through? Again, all day talk potentially, you know, but. I, I don't
0: have a lot of experience with pain management. I mostly work. I work in addiction, which is kind of another form of pain management. Um, but the interesting thing about, you know, of course, again, it's spectrum. There, there's, there's chronic pain that needs to be medicated and professionally addressed, like in Western medical settings. Which you know is one thing, and then there's like my back hurts a little bit, and I think I
5: need one. to stop. You know, like which you know,
0: so I think that when we think about pain, one of the things that's very interesting if you look at like John Kabat-Zinn's work in MBSR, the thing that was so interesting that put mindfulness on the map in the clinical realm was that what they, one of the early studies of MBSR they found was that people who had actually had legitimate chronic pain, when they started doing mindfulness. And they suffered more when they weren't in pain. So they would be mindful. And if they weren't in chronic pain, they would be so scared and so anticipating the pain
1: to come back that when the pain switched back on, they actually felt relieved.
0: So they suffered more in the absence of the pain. And they actually felt better when the pain was actually more acute. Which is just wild, right? And that was really what kind of gave it a level. Maybe there's something here about this mindfulness business, and it's just kind of looking at, you know, of course the Buddha's all up to say how much we hate pain, uh, but I actually don't think that's true. I think we're scared more so than we hate it. I think my my initial relationship to any kind of pain is I'm afraid that it's going to happen, and. And I can become so afraid of pain, it can be anything from uh, you know physical pain, emotional pain, psychological pain, it's all pain. But I can be so afraid of pain that I can be in zero pain and be suffering about pain. And I think it's really actually what the Buddha was very, very really put him on his quest is he became very clear, I think, in his own experience, in other people's experience that as human beings, we suffer in ways that seem to be tragically unnecessary. Right? Tragically unnecessary if we suffer. With or without pain. So it's that anticipatory kind of, or even on, I, I, for me, I, from a trauma perspective, for me, it's the attitude of waiting for the other shooter to come. Yeah, my leg's going pretty good right now, but well, you just wait a second, now going to get going bad for me. That kind of like almost, uh, you know, I call it the wound that sees the arrow. Uh, that kind of unliberated pain that's like waiting to get hurt again, and then I go around looking for it. Yeah. I hope that's helpful. Yeah.
5: Hi. Right I my my experience uh, with certain teachings like Ahimsa or uh, right speech sometimes the turning that towards the self becomes secondary and that like these attitudes are violence and not right speech and to remember that you know I, I often forget that it's often that's like a secondary like violence to yourself is not the focus it always seems like outward seeking.
0: Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I, I totally that's been my experience. And in fact, when I teach retreats, the way that I
5: frame the heart practices, because I've struggled with them, I felt awkward of sitting
0: quietly and kind of saying nice things to myself, you know? And, you know? That's not the point, but we can get caught up in that. I actually believe that Brahma Vihara practices are a vehicle to right speech. And it's really actually the cultivation of the eightfold path, because we start with the right view, and the view is I want to be kind to myself. And that's the right view. The second factor is that that's not enough. Just wanting that to be true is not going to get you anywhere. But then it has to be put in the the intention. Not only do I want to be kind to myself, but I'm going to put into an intentional way of being that's going to prove that I believe that that's true. And then to say, may I be happy, may I be at ease, it's really right speech. It's a a training in right speech, talking to ourselves of this well-wishing may I, and I think that, that that looking at it as that way a lot of times will calm people down because if I don't with the right speech thing <laughs> I'll do it.
5: You know, <laughs> you know, people are weird, right? So
0: I have found that to be actually very helpful for me because you know what is thinking, right? Thinking is just me talking to me in my head. So wouldn't it be better if I trained my mind to say things that were kind and compassionate rather than you know wouldn't it just make sense to do that? And I have found that actually over years of cultivating these phrases that actually but the outcome of that is, is that experience. But you know it's not gonna happen if you do it four days a week or four days a year on the retreat you sat last summer. But I did that, that last summer at that retreat. Is that Yeah yeah that's an
5: observation. Thank I you. think that's
0: a good observation.
5: Thank you. Hi, thank you. Um, one thing I wanted to say is one of my teachers here sent me on the subway with a metta practice and told me to do it for a month, every every minute, not just one ride, but every minute as I was walking down the stairs, as I was going. It was not easy at first. And then he said, I would like to ride next to you if you're doing a metta practice on the subway. <laughs> so that was really something. But anyway, um, I... I am having a lot of trouble not getting hooked on a lot of news and out things that are very upsetting. I'm trying to not be, I don't want to be political, I want to just say that it's very hard for me to send metta and loving kindness to people who are doing really, really, really bad things repeatedly. And are yeah,
0: the people who need it the most?
5: Yeah. And I have a sponsor actually that says to me, "You can't afford to live that with that kind of poison." Yeah, right. So I try to remember that. But it's just—it's. I just want to. I just am airing that. It's really hard. Yeah, it's
0: really hard. And you know, and we have to do it. You know, we just do it. It's an equanimity practice. It's just like understanding that. Um, you know, you know, hurt people, hurt people, and I think that's the perspective to go with. Is that. These people who cause suffering, even large scale suffering, it just whether it's true or not, it's just better to believe that they're deeply unhappy. And you know, um, I did this for years. I worked in a critical setting. Clinic. I worked, I worked in prisons, and I used to go teach meditation to the prisoners. And I'd walk to the guards, and the guards were terrible to me. You know, I'm in the deep south teaching Buddhist meditation to black guys in prison. And the white guards, not the nicest guys. And I would just do, and I would just be really, really kind to them. And after a while, they just couldn't take it anymore. They just stopped being like terrible there. Maybe. How's it going? You know, it was just like, it was just like I, the more animosity I got, the, I was just like, I'm going to kill them with kindness. Even if I don't feel it, even if I don't mean it, even if I don't think that they deserve it, I'm going to do it anyway. You know, and it's just like, I think that as practitioners, it's like, it's the view we have to take. Because if we're going to have like conditional and selective meta, like what are we doing again? And so I think it's good to, I think that the public practice is brilliant. I think anything that we do is brilliant. Because actually the key thing, if you read this book, Altered traits that was came out last year from Richard Davis and David Bowman, Who've been doing all this research and now meta's starting to get research, which is great. There's this thing we all talk about now called implicit bias, you know this term. Meta, one of the one of the quickest benefits of meta practice is your under, your implicit bias starts to become deteriorated. Where you your tendency is to give people the benefit of adapt. doubt. You know, and imagine if our world was doing more of this. Because we all have implicit bias, right? We know this but what it does is we're more likely to let people off the hook or to extend a sense of uh, loving kindness towards them rather than contempt and judgment and devaluing and better than and becoming this sort of Buddhist moral superiority which we can get into. And then we're just doing what they're doing. But we're doing it from an elevated place. That's very destructive. So I, I found it to just be like, you know, my, if my meta practice doesn't include everybody, then it's not complete. And not everybody needs to start and improve me all that will keep you busy all week. <laughs> You'll never report again. Like that. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. I'll take one more and we'll move on. Do you want to? I, you have, anybody who didn't ask a question of what's we of the one?
4: I'll talk to you afterwards if this time Hi. Um, this weekend I uh, had an experience that um, was really empowering. Um, for the past 38 years, I had what I called a mentor. She is a brilliant psychologist in Utah. She was my psychologist when I was a kid. Now she's seeing my brother in Utah, but um, I've been listening to Carolyn Mays. I don't know if anyone knows her, but this lady has really changed my life with really um, about love and kindness. She goes through everything. And my point being is that one of the things she said about addictions was you can be addicted to a person. Whenever, addiction is when you give your power, energy away to something. And if you're relying on another person for validation, that is an addiction. So for the past 38 years, um, my friend, this brilliant lady, I have relied on her for validation. And I don't anymore. And we, we, we I challenged her Not mad at her, but it was letting go and taking my own power back. Um, And I'd been asleep for 24 hours before I came here. And I had so much to do today. And I, I woke up and I was so happy because I slept last night. But I was just so fatigued. And I woke up at 4.30. I just didn't understand why I was so tired. And the compassion part was I think that the courageousness that it took for me to be self-empowered and let go of this addiction to this person, I think it just wiped me out. That was the compassion that I felt when I sat there, because you beat, and I'm writing about shame and guilt. You know, I I am a very decent person. I'm one of the nicest persons I know. It's like I'm writing in my journal, stop feeling so guilty and shame about things. I mean, you're a great guy. And I'm so nice to other people, why can't I be nice to myself? So when I woke up, I said, I think just sitting with myself, I'm just like, oh, you could have done this, you should have done that, I had to do this. And I just ran out the door to come here, because I love it here. But I, I, I think that's what it must have been. I couldn't. That was a big thing for me, after 38 years, to take my power back um, from her. Because she really, no one, gets to validate me, or or I'm giving away my power. And um, that was an addiction because I was seeking it from her. Like, is this okay? Is that okay? Is this okay? I'm doing this. And and it's not my nature to do that. I really have a mind of my own. I always have. So there was always this unsettling to go to people um, and... uh, seek a conventional way of doing things or traditional because I don't think like that. I never have. And she does. And she really doesn't understand me, but that's okay because I need to understand me. So, um, I think I, I this love and kindness thing, I, you know, I I just want to say one more thing because I slept for so long. My legs needed exercise so instead of taking a bus, I said, no, you're going to walk 20, 20 minutes to the You know, and I'm taking a walk, listening to my music. But there's, and then, you know, you can just be nice to yourself. You know, uh, Keller may say, why can't you just like life? Why can't you just, like, be nice to yourself? And I I do, I feel that way. So, um, thank you. I enjoyed the uh, sitting and everything that you said, especially about your little boy, and congratulations with your new baby. Keep going.
0: Thank you for your questions. It always takes a while to get the first one, and then it kind of, you know. It always happens like that. So usually, for the talk tonight, some of you probably read it on uh, two things. There's really two talks, actually, here. Uh, The first one is on spiritual bypass, which is a talk that I've given uh, many times in Dharma communities around, uh, and just generally speaking, I guess the way I would define it and one thing I want to say, actually, very clearly, and to be clear about this, is when I say spiritual violence, I don't mean for this to be like a derogatory thing. Like, you know, everybody does it a little bit. It's not this, I don't think people do it intentionally. But what it is, is when we start using Dharma practices or Dharma techniques or even Dharma philosophy as a way to avoid dealing with something that we just don't want to deal with, that we don't want to feel with, that we don't want to acknowledge. It's it's always got a little bit of delusion and denial in it built right into it. And as human beings, we can't but help that. So I just just want to make that very clear. And the other side of this is this talk that I actually given as a public lecture
1: in in mostly specular places and mostly to clinical people is what I call the
0: war on emotion. And what I mean by that, It's it's not that hard to recognize that as a culture we kind of declare a war against unpleasant mental states, indefinitely unpleasant emotions, and really any unpleasant or difficult psychological pattern. That if there's something happening internally that I don't really understand or I don't want to feel, there's actually something wrong with me. And we have this whole diagnostic manual of mental disorders. and. We over-pathologize everything about the human experience even mildly mildly uncomfortable. And the pharmacology industry is not the multi-billion dollar industry, it is, because of this phenomenon. And so when we look at the two of these things coming together, is we one thing that I found to often be the culprit in all of this is emotion. Is that whether we have mental states, we have psychological patterns, our thinking life, that we suffer in most mostly, we'll recognize that we can follow to it through most of our sort of destructive thinking is driven by a kind of emotional engine. So usually it's the emotion that's got its foot on the gas pedal, and what happens is we we try to think our way out of everything, as my trauma therapist likes to say. If all you have is a hammer, everything becomes a nail. And when it comes to working with emotion and understanding emotion uh, in a pragmatic way, um, thinking is actually probably the last tool that's going to be helpful. You know, and we use thinking in our culture of anxiety and uh, overthinking and sort of just mental suffering, for lack of a better term. Um, so much suffering happens there. And a lot of it is emotional. And we, 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 we can't get out of it. We're so hooked into thinking too much about everything all the time. Uh, have you noticed this? And then we, then we come into practice with the delusion that, oh, my, if I'm just mindful, uh, this idea that, that mindfulness or meditation is about clearing your mind. If you're in big trouble. People say that and they, say, oh, I think people at the airport are like, I can never meditate. I can never clear my mind. And I'm like, well, nobody can clear their mind. Um, and so a lot of it has really been set up for this. So the reason why I like to talk about emotion, and, and for me, really just from a personal perspective. Most of my life, early life for sure, and then around 11, I had a first traumatic event where my sister, who was very, very close to my oldest sister, was tragically killed in a car accident. Um, and so she went to school one day, she never came home, she was in a car that like, had a telephone call, and so sort of my sister died, and then my, I just went back to school again. And nobody really talked to me about it. It just sort of happened and then everything sort of continued. And so at 11 years old, I couldn't really put all that together. And that was the beginning of sort of this, uh, probably sadness, probably anger, maybe even actually, even though it doesn't make sense, but probably a lot of shame. Um, emotions sort of trapped in my system, which really kind of drove my behavior, my thinking, and my worldview, and my self view for many, many years. So I always had, and I don't know this is not uncommon, but I've always had this sense or this feeling that there was something just kind of wrong about me or wrong with me. I got the sense that other people had that, but I didn't feel like I had a, a degree of it that seemed unreasonably high. Too much. And it took me years to figure it out. Actually, the problem was that I have emotions. And I, I just don't know what to do with I had no emotional intelligence. I didn't have a language for them. I didn't have practices for them. I didn't understand how they worked in the system. I didn't understand that there were different kinds of emotions. I didn't understand that no different emotions have an evolutionary purpose. I didn't understand that I'm not always emotional. None of us are. Emotions happen in episodes. And so I'm going these really long insight retreats, 10 days, 14 days, a month, three months
1: at one point.
0: And when you're on these silent retreats when you don't look at anybody, you don't talk to anybody, your emotions sort of don't get triggered. And you have this great experience of like samadhi and ease, and you hear the birds at the window, and you're connected to the universe, and everything's great. And then you get off the tree, and you have a conversation with a human being, and then they're gone. You did what for ten days? What the hell's wrong with you? I don't know. What is wrong? What did I do?
1: Such a good
0: idea on your own. And so on the these retreats that we go on are very, very unlikely that you're going to have a big emotional episode. And then when you come back to your retreat and you start having emotional episodes, and you're like, what, what 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 happened? I never could make, I could never get everything I just said together. It didn't make sense to me. I thought that, yeah, I would obviously do something wrong. Because that's my general view on most things. Clearly, I must be doing something wrong because I'm having a feeling that seems unreasonably loud. <laughs> so, really, most of my suffering up until this very day is usually emotional. I don't have a lot of physical suffering. I've, I've never had a problem with pain body so much. I, I've, I've had a pretty good relationship with my somatic experience. My mind, me and my mind are pretty cool, like we're good. You know, my, my thoughts don't usually, I can manage them for the most part, I've got practices for that. But when I become emotional, all bets are off. I can't think clearly, logic and reason out the door, choice to some degree out the door. I just become reactive. I become, who did this? How do I fix it? Whose fault is it? Who made me feel this way? How do I make sure this never happens again? So because of uh, my sister and also another car accident years later, a girlfriend of mine got got killed, and this weird car accident, Getting involved in a romantic, intimate relationship with another human being was basically a stupid idea, and I don't know why anybody would want to do that. Because for me it just equals pain eventually. Pain, betrayal, abandonment, around the next corner. So it's no fault. I, I spent about a good ten, a good decade of my adult life totally single, totally lonely, and mostly miserable. I didn't experience any emotional suffering as a result of being in an intimate relationship. So I had that going for me. And so, when I talk about spiritual bypass, I will up to the idea, I actually don't think I experienced sadness for about a decade. So if you're sad and you don't like it, talk to me after class, I'll totally show you how to repress it. Slamming my down.
5: <laughs> now, unfortunately,
0: it does come with a list of side effects. So you got to kind of weigh that out. Sadness versus side effects of not feeling the sadness. Because, and, and, and I didn't, like, sit down and go, how do I create a spiritual podcast so I do sadness? It's not like I did that. But there's a way in which we can use attention to repress emotion. So just go back to the breath business, right? Just don't go there, man, just come back. At some point, we kind of have to go there. Right. So I use that. I, I use meditative techniques. Um, I also use some of my traumatic stress symptoms, one of the things that I've, I've had for many, many years, which I don't have anymore, i God, got the EMDR, is I used to suffer really strongly from um, hypervigilance, which is an over-focused attention. Anybody have, I don't believe you But for me, I was still on these retreats and I literally was gonna take the present moment and I was gonna nail it to the floor. <laughs> like that's the level of like focus I put on my breath. I was like, I am going to, and that would be it. Just like every moment was like a war against my And then I would get blown out and I would dissociate for about 20 minutes. And I'm like, all right, and it was just like nailed to the floor or like I'm totally done. Not for ten days. (laughs) (laughs) Not great meditative techniques. Not middle way for sure. (laughs) But I didn't I didn't know that this was kind of what was happening. Because if you start studying the Dharma, you can do that really quickly. You can become a sort of know it all where you can just sort of explain all your troubles away through some list, some archaic list that you don't understand anyway, And you can kind
1: of you it.
0: And so I had all these things going for me. And it wasn't until I realized that actually what, what was going on was uh, emotion with, with the engine that and then actually, if I could just put all of what I just said aside and actually feel into my somatic experience and unlock or access these emotions and let them do what they're supposed to do, arise and pass away, that actually that was where my freedom was. That was where I wanted to be. Again, the downside of that is you actually have to experience the emotion. In all of our emotions, uh, the one thing I've noticed about my emotion, when we think about, like, the self, which is a big topic in Dharma, is that uh, each emotion has its own little autobiography. Does anybody hear, like, stories about yourself? Like, you sort of tell stories about yourself, like, uh, how it's going good, how it's not going good, how you're a person living in a world, that things aren't fair, and things don't go your way, things are never going to work out for me, and why are things never going to go for me? Why am I a person living in a world
1: so like these emotions and like anger
0: has its own autobiography so when i'm angry i have a story about myself and the world and how i think to that world now sadness also has its own autobiography but the sadness story and the anger story very different stories very different stories shame very different story than anger. Right. So what happens is psychologically, in my thinking, is I'm going to default to whatever story is most comfortable for me. For me it was anger. I can be angry for you. I'm a man in America. I'm allowed to be angry. I'll go with that. So that would be the anger. That, I would, that would be the emotion I would have access to. First of all, socially acceptable. I can easily roll all the other emotions into that one. Anger, fear, contempt, which really works really well. If another person triggers an emotion within, emotion within me that I don't want to feel, I can just blast them with a little contempt. And uh, I'm better than you anyway, or you making me have a feeling. And all this is going on.
1: A couple months ago, I was teaching in uh, this place in the
0: West Coast, this really, really fancy retreat center called 1440 University, with a good friend of mine, George Hawks. You guys, some of you might know George Hawks. Brilliant drama teacher. He comes through, you can totally check out George. This whole thing about attachment theory, and he's actually quite a brilliant thing. So I'm to teach, teach the George, which means I a George for five days, which is like the best part of the retreat for me. And so Kabor Mate was also a teacher. So you might know him. Um, and you know, So him, so the Mate and Adyashanti, who's sort of this mystic meditation teacher, um, I that. Um, <laughs> we're having a talk, a public lecture on uh, spiritual bypass. And it was Adyashanti and the Mate, and we were are like, we are going to check this out. It's going to kill her. It wasn't kill him. It was a miracle. And so one of the things that started out, and I've also come from a Buddhist community where there was a lot of unethical kind of behavior part of the stream and in recent times, a lot of these Buddhist communities, a lot of terrible things that happened. So Gabor Maté says to adi Shanti, he says, so Adi-Santi, Shanti. How is it, adi Shanti, that these liberated, enlightened Buddhist teachers who have made all this spiritual advancement, these awakened, enlightened beings, how is it that these people, Participate in such abhorrent behavior? How is it that you can be totally enlightened spiritually and sexually harm students? How can you both of those things be true? And Alexander, at least in his aspect, general advocate, you could tell he was not happy about the question, and he kind of gave this answer uh, that I think is really the wrong answer. Uh, that really pointed to the first wife he kind of clumsily said, well, you know, uh, people can be very spiritually advanced and have these invisible, enlightened beings. And they, they also can be very, uh, spiritually or emotionally immature at the same time. And I actually completely and totally reject that idea. Because when you think about dharma practice, you talk about sila, samadhi, tanya, it begins with sila, it begins with integrity, it begins with ethics. If you don't have that down, if you can't not harm people with your sexuality, then all the other things that you do are completely delusional. Maybe you're a charismatic teacher, you can give it the dharma talk, you can transmit these big ideas. But if you can't not harm the people in the room, I just can't get behind it. In fact, I would go so far as to say the reason that shit happens is because the person sitting in the front of the room is doing a wicked spiritual bypass. Yeah. That spiritual bypass of I am so high flu, I am operating on such a higher plane than you that I can take advantage of you, I can manipulate you, I can take advantage of you sexually, financially. Like, this shit has got to stop. The idea that both can be true is just completely, I just can't accept that. These are not spiritually awakened people. These are not people who are enlightened beings. These are probably very traumatized, wounded people who are maybe intentionally or not so intentionally taking advantage of the people around them. You know, probably, uh, I would argue, we can go two sides of it. I err on the Buddhist side. On the Buddhist side, these are deeply, deeply wounded people who are acting out on their woundedness and they're harming other people. Maybe intentionally, maybe not intentionally. Or we could go the Western side and apologize then, as the sociopath, or narcissists or whatever. I don't like that so much. It doesn't feel right. It just feels uh, too problematic and too punished. So me and George were up till like four o'clock in the morning, just like being like, "Did we just see that go down? Is that like the answer they gave?" And so when we see what happens a lot of times, it, of course, Buddhism in America is actually a baby. It's you know very very new. In fact, if you look at it academically, when when the Dharma goes to a new area, it becomes a new kind of Buddhism. So the Dharma goes to China, became Chan. It goes to Japan, became Zen. It goes. It travels around the world and becomes something else. And actually, it takes historically about 400 years. Every time the Dharma goes to a new culture, society, country, it's about 400 years before it actually starts to make a noticeable impact on the population. We're like 50 years in, maybe. Maybe 100 if you want to go to the Asian side of the culture. Maybe, maybe it'll happen quicker here because of the technological world that doing it. But we see a lot of these problematic, these things have been problematic in other Buddhist traditions. We, we've also inherited that. We've inherited the hierarchy and the sexism and the, and the, and, and, and the teacher with the special teacher's fits. Like I have the real secret teachings. Mm-hmm. Hang out after class and I'll show you the real stuff. Which mm-hmm. is so anti-buddhas. The Buddha was very, the Buddha always said, I teach you an open fist. I teach you an open fist, I teach you the open heart. I teach you everything that I know, I hold nothing back. I hold nothing back. It's like the old snake salesman, right? I have something you want. I'll give it to you, what are you going to do for it? It's like like the shell game at the back of the bus." Hmm. And when we're wounded people, when we come into a, a community or a place where something like the Dharma is being offered, we can't but help, you know, falter for this kind of thing. And I don't believe that anybody, you know, in the back room of any of these places, twisting their mustaches, plotting some evil scheme, but this is just how human beings are. This is how these things play out. And so this is that yeah, spiritual in its worst form somebody who is not addressing something that has happened, or does not have the ability to actually access the full emotional system that they've been born into. And this is kind of something that I think we need to be aware of and we need to pay attention to. And so one thing I think about Dharma practice that's also a little bit problematic, and I don't blame the Dharma, this is just a language thing, is that really actually in classic Dharma, and really in Buddhism, uh, all forms of Buddhism, even all the way back to the earlier teachings, there's really no word uh, that would come close to anything that we use when we say emotion. You know, they talk about as the third foundation of mindfulness is uh, I mean, a chick which I mean, is defined as hard-mind, which I don't find to be all that helpful. What is the hard-mind? And so, uh, there's not really a word that they use uh, that encapsulates what we know in Western psychology and actually science as emotion. You know, the general kind of um, description and really the third foundation of mindfulness mindfulness mind, of the mind or heart mind is to just abandon the tendency for greed, hatred, and delusion, and to know the presence of greed, hatred, and delusion in your minds. And that's kind of it, which is fairly barbaric, I think, on some level, and it doesn't give us, a, it doesn't give me a complete map. I don't feel like that's, that's been an adequate instruction, abandon greed, hatred, and delusion. First of all I actually haven't been able to do it I think it's neurobiologically programmed into a nice leisure brain um, and it's just it's just not a, it's not enough of a map for me to navigate my life and so when we look at science one of the things I love about what thing I love about American Buddhism if I can use that word it actually, you know, when, when the Dharma went to China, it took on its cultural elements and when it, that's why the Zen tradition is so austere, because, because of the Japanese culture. But because of our culture being so westernized, and so based on psychology, I mean, like 70% of Dharma teachers are like therapists and Dharma teachers, like that's
2: not an accident. <laughs> right.
0: And this is, I think, a good thing. Because when we start to merge, we can start to integrate what I call secular dharma is where we're using some of these secular ideas, psychology, therapy, science of emotion, all of the the science that we know, dharma practice, meditative inquiry, mindfulness, awareness, the heart practices is the best vehicle that we have to get in there. So it's a contemplative science. It's just what my friend Eve Dugman calls a knee search. Where I can actually learn how to understand what's going on in my direct experience by what science teaches us, by what we understand in psychology, things like somatic
5: experience, and EMDR, and the
0: family systems, and all of these <coughs> great psychodynamic things that we have in our culture. And I benefit greatly from therapy. And when integrated into our practice of Dharma, it's just like it's a total home you know, leave no rock unturned. You know, and I've been and I'm in and a spiritual I've been open, the, the Dharma is the true way. And I'm not gonna monkey around with these 12 steps and this trauma therapy and all this lower Western psychology. I'm better than that. It actually turns out to be the emotion of intent. Which turns <laughs> out to be the most destructive emotion of all. The idea that I'm better than anybody else on this planet is actually basically the reason why the planet is in the situation that it's in. Contempt. The asserting of superiority the value of another person. The Dalai Lama did this out in the year 2000, and came out of that book, 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 book the shows, where he actually identified it, that that is actually the seed that is going to destroy the human race. Just the idea that I'm better than anybody. And all the behaviors associated with that idea. Talk about pre-hater and delusion. Well, I'm better than you, so I'm just gonna take 90% of the resources. Mm-hmm. You guys can fight over the rest. That's ruder than that idea. So a couple of things I can say I think that maybe are helpful before we run out of time is that when, when we think about uh, mindfulness and drama practice, when we think about present time awareness, what we learn to do is we learn to track our direct experience one moment at a time and to try to create this thread of continuity of awareness. So mindfulness, consciousness, awareness is something that we have to monitor and manage essentially at every moment. But emotions are not like that. Emotions happen episodically. Meaning that we're not always emotional. Probably most of us in this room, this room probably has five to seven emotional episodes a day. And you might be aware of one of them at best. And that's that feeling of getting home at the end of the day, texting a friend or talking to a friend or talking to your partner or your and saying, oh my God, you're not going to have Almost every story you have about, like, you're not going to believe what happened today was because of an emotional experience that you had. It could have been something that happened that was scary, something that happened that made you angry, you know, and that's sort of the story that we've And so when we start to integrate mindfulness, and mindfulness and emotional intelligence, is we want to be able to start to understand when we're emotional to actually be mindful moment, moment, like, okay, I'm emotional right now. I maybe don't even know what emotion is, but I know that when I'm, when I'm emotional, what happens is, as human beings, we tend to do things and to say things that we regret later. Have you ever done anything when you were angry that you regretted <laughs> later? We call that a regrettable emotional episode. So typically we'll do or say things when we become emotional that we regret later. Or the emotional experience is too bearable that we do something to suppress that emotion. Like, for example, does anybody know what this is? I'm sitting at lunch with my wife or a friend of mine. They get up to go to the bathroom. I'm sitting alone at a table. 13 seconds goes by. I feel really uncomfortable. I can't sit by myself for a You think that's not, you don't think that's just, oh no, I just need to check my thing, I mean, I'm totally good.
1: I just want to check my thing, yeah. but it's
0: closer. It's that small. And that's a really what addiction is all about, anything that we do to avoid change or control something that we don't want to feel. And we all do this all the time. And this isn't bad or wrong, this isn't derogatory, this is what we do, it's moving, it's how we are. But we want to be able to recognize and become emotional, it's probably good if we can start to learn what that emotion is. It's probably be good to understand what emotions we have access to and what emotions we don't have access to. If anybody tells you they don't experience any shame, you should stay away from them. <laughs> oh, shame. None. Uh, you pointed out earlier, you know, that's why I'm even into guilt and shame.
1: You're a good person. There's no reason why you should feel shame. The people who should be feeling the shame, ain't feeling it. That's the problem.
0: For example, the guy in the White House, no shame. He's great, tremendous. This poor guy over
1: here, got killed in shame. He ain't done nothing wrong since 1972. Right?
0: Am that doesn't make any sense. Anymore. So when we think about categorizing emotions, as you're here, if you remember anything I say tonight, please remember this. We have got to stop using this language of positive and negative emotions. Because it's simply A, not true, and not helpful. The way that we want to classify emotions that terms from the Tibetan tradition, the Dalai Lama, and the science research into emotion, fairly trustworthy folks, is that really, when we think about emotions, the question is, do I have a destructive relationship to this emotion, or a constructive relationship? And a destructive relationship to the emotion means that when I'm in the emotion, I do something or I say something that inhibits my
1: well-being
0: and the well-being of another person. Harm is created. If I get angry and cause myself harm or cause you harm, that's a destructive outcome. A constructive emotion is anything that furthers the happiness of myself or somebody else. That means I want to have access to anger, fear, sadness, contempt, disgust, shame, and surprise. Those are the eight universal emotions. We all have them. Everybody has them. They're evolutionally inherited. They came on the hard drive. There's <laughs> <laughs> nothing you can do about them except for be aware of it. So learning how to that like what emotions do you have access to? What emotions do you have access to? You can have not enough anger to be destructive. The classic codependent or the classic al person, the person who can't get angry enough to set or hold a boundary is destructive anger. Because you know what the role of anger is? It's to remove an obstacle. You know any obstacles in your life you'd like to remove? You're going to need the anger emotion to do that. And if you don't have access to it, you can't utilize anger, people are going to walk all over you. They're going to take advantage of you, you're going to get in a destructive relationship. Well, why does it be mean, <clears throat> it's, it's actually not enough, it's also destructive. But well, we would say, well, anger is an a negative emotion, you need to go to an anger class. <laughs> That's not true. Anger can be constructive or it can be destructive. Shame can be very, very constructive. Shame can act as a type of moral compass. Shame can help us disengage with behaviors because we don't want to feel the shame. Well, if you do that thing, and every time you do that thing you feel shamed out, maybe if you stop doing the thing, the shame wouldn't arise and you could actually intervene on the whole thing. What did that occur to you. Mm-hmm. But alcohol, right? Like, I haven't had alcohol in 16 years. I also haven't been to an ATM machine at 4 o'clock in the morning in 16 years. <laughs> 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 Who knew? <laughs> Like the origination was a thing. (laughs) Don't do the thing, and then the next thing doesn't happen. Right? We know this, right? And so when we really want to start to think about this, it's really good for us to have some emotional vocabulary, to know when you're emotional. You don't even necessarily need to know what the emotion is yet. You just need to know that when you're in that state, and it's not always happening, sometimes it'll happen. So the three things we want to remember is really what we want to be able to do is we want to be able to recognize when you become emotional. We want to be able to, this is the key, this is the key to your freedom. is you want to be able to choose what you do or what you say when you become emotional. You want to be able to choose. When I become emotional, I don't choose, I just say shit. Whatever comes out, I just, all kinds of stuff comes out of my mouth. And no, like then I'm like, I can't believe I said those seven things in my life. What would I think? I didn't you can't put the word back in your mouth. It would be not. So with that recognizing I'm emotional, I'm angry with my wife right now. I need to be very careful what I say. So I want to be able to recognize when I become emotional. I want to be able to choose what I do or say when I become emotional. And to do that, I want to increase the gap between stimulus and response. Mindfulness, I want to practice mindfulness because the more mindfulness I have, when I'm, if I'm in a kind of foundational practice of, of learning to monitor my mind and body, monitor my mind and body, when you start to get into the habit of monitoring your body, when the emotion arises, you're just going to like have a check-in going. And what this does actually become emotional awareness will start to become emotional empathy, which means that we'll start to uh, have a loving kindness, a compassion, and all around the rhymes and around our emotions. We start to have a kind attitude. I'm, I'm a human being who gets emotional and that's never going to stop. I'm a, I'm a human being who experiences painful and difficult emotions that at times are kind of, uh, absolutely excruciating. And that's okay, I care about myself enough to know that that's going to happen, maybe tomorrow. I'm a human being who understands that I have these beautiful emotional experiences. I have a reminiscence in memory, but a whole range of experiences in my system that are actually beautiful, that are emotional. that I can learn to appreciate that, that gratitude to it. And I can have that in me and understand that this is not going to stop happening. And this work that I do with my friend Eve Beckham called Cultivating Emotional Balance. You can check out the that CDB is a training that was created by the Dalai
1: Lama uh,
0: that really actually uses uh,
1: mindfulness,
0: heart practices, integrated with the science of emotion. That's a very, very well laid out sort of curriculum that you can check out that really has completely changed my life. It's totally... I need to experience shame, mm-hmm. anger, and sadness every day. Mm-hmm. And you know what? It's no big deal, it turns out actually. It's what do want to do? Five to seven minutes, it's gone. Mm-hmm. So that, that acceptance and mentality and all that somatic body awareness and having tolerance and like described tonight as kindness towards my body. Emotions are in your body. They're not in your mind. Your mind is thinking about emotions. Your body experiences experiencing the emotion. And, and you're holding there their, we all have them. Everybody has them. It's just, just it's like everybody has skin and, and lungs. It's just, it's part of our evolutionary unfold. And I actually find this to be very refreshing and very, like when I learned about the science of emotion, I'm why didn't they teach me that? Why did I learn algebra and integrate? <laughs> that shit didn't do me any good. Why didn't they sit down and go, "You know, Dave, from time to time you're going to experience these emotions, and they hate them.
1: Here's what they are.
0: Here's what they feel like. Here's how they work. And here's some strategies that you can develop." No, I just went and you know, smoke weed and drink beer in the car at lunch so that I could go back. And to the
1: emotional experience of the rest of my high <laughs>
0: school experience, and that's the problem with drugs and alcohol. But they will certainly help you regulate your emotions. You know? Drugs and alcohol actually work. There's some side effects that some of you <laughs> know. Okay. 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 So the question becomes, you know, it's sort of an academic thing of, do you really want to understand your emotions and your emotional life and how they work, or do you want to try to manage the side effects of not doing that? That's kind of where you're at. That's where I'm at.
1: And the side effects sometimes
0: start to look pretty good. But really, our, our liberation, I think, really from the Buddha's perspective, uh, is really, and I think the Buddha was very clear about this, problem you have the language, that we really have to learn how to have this somatic awareness of our complete and total system. All of it. And to learn how to be in it, how to move through it how to respond to it and really how to embrace our humanity rather than getting these ideas of the nightmare into a nightmare, or a other round or a higher way of being I think that the, the liberation of the Dharma going to in your bones, not in your ideas. So I think I'm going to stop there. Thank you for your attention. We have a few minutes left. Sorry, I took so much time. We have a few minutes left if you have any uh, further questions.
1: Thank you. I, I, I actually have a real, I'm loud. <laughs> okay. um, I know it, the Dalai Lama has commented on it, and a lot of uh, Eastern teachers coming to the West are always amazed at the difficulty that Americans and Westerners have with doing that up because, especially for themselves, because we all hate ourselves so much inside. Sure. And that the Easterners, why do you think that is? Do you, what, I don't know. Well, in,
0: in Eastern culture, it's like part of the culture is actually to love yourself. It's like the, you, it's something that's valued. Like, the, 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 one of the meetings that happened in the early 80s, one of the first times Western teachers, inside teachers, brought the valley along over for a teacher's meeting to sort of check in, what Sharon, I think, actually asked that question to Dalai Lama, and he didn't have a word in Tibet for self-hatred. They went back and forth like eight times with the translator. He's like, oh, well, not know what people are talking about. That. And when he finally got it out, I, I don't know if it's true, but I was told he actually started crying because the idea that you could hate yourself is so foreign. It's so foreign that it, it wouldn't even occur to even think that. But for us, it's like. Easy peasy. It's like, yeah, the first thought on my wake in the morning is I suck life. You know? And so I, I don't know why right, that if it is. If I describe it as original sin. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know why it is. I don't know that it matters why it is. But I think that if you find it to be true for you, you might want to start doing some math practice. You know? And I think that it, it, it's a, it is a kind of dominant paradigm in our psychology. I kind of
1: wanted to know what the Easterners were doing in there. They were not hating themselves. They didn't have to. They didn't have to because they never,
0: that wasn't part of their worldview. That wouldn't even occur. I'm not sure it did in some cases, but it's a foreign concept to them. Someone's like, why would you do that? Why would anybody do that? That's just silly. We're like, no, it's totally over
4: I was wondering um, why you had said to say, (laughs) uh, may I be healed or like may my heart be awakened instead of thank you for healing me, thank you for awakening my heart. Like, Because to me, the first one sounds like you're asking for something that's not happening yet that you're not even sure of, where the second one uh, assures yourself that it is happening, that it's a process and it's continuing. So I was wondering about the phrasing.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of ways to do the phrasing, and a lot of it's semantical. Um, but my, my training was always, a, well, I was always taught it as a neon, as a sort of well-wishing and as a request, which can be problematic for, for what you just pointed out, like, well, shouldn't that already be true? Um, so in, if that's the case, like, one thing I like about these phrases is you can totally change them. You know, I think people get caught in the, like, well, this is their traditional phrase out of the Suri manga in the 15th century. It's like, you know, it's like, well, you, you can use the ones that actually fit for your current situation. So usually, like, when I work with people one-on-one, like, mostly everybody's using different phrases because of their, the phrase should meet their internal reality in a way that's actually conducive. So even the idea to give a, an instruction like that to a large group of strangers is a little bit kind of for what for the reasons that you point out but that was just the way that that, that i was taught and then in the tradition was this, this this may i which is kind of an aspirational well-wishing uh, kind of uh,
3: holding of that hi thanks for your talk <clears throat> i just uh i guess i had a question about meta itself when you're repeating the repeating the phrases, Um, my experience of it is that I very rarely feel any compassion when I'm saying those words, and it's more when thoughts are just drifting in and out of my mind, and something is very compelling, and at that moment there's like a, a heart opening or whatever, a feeling of compassion and sorrow, whatever it may be. But it rarely, if ever, happens when I'm repeating, you know, um, may I be safe, healthy, So I'm like, I'm still just trying to understand it. I think it's good, but it feels almost like an affirmation. um, And I don't know that it feels like I'm actually feeling emotions. It comes in other times when I'm meditating.
0: Yeah, that's that's often, I hear that more often than not. That's pretty common with the way you're describing. But I think it's important, the way that I, was trained and understanding, is actually when I'm practicing meta, I'm not trying to feel it now. I'm actually just training my mind to incline in that way. As the Buddha would say, a tree that leans to the east will eventually fall to the east. A tree that leans to the west will eventually fall to the west. So with my mind, if I train my mind to lean in the meta direction, eventually I'm gonna be out in the world somewhere and, and, and it's going to arise because I've been cultivating it. So actually when we're cultivating practices on the cushion at our, at our house in the morning, we're not trying to do it for now. We're trying to, we're trying to actually like uh, cultivate that way so in a future moment when that will be helpful, we've actually cultivated something. So I think we gotta get out of this idea, and of course a part of the present time awareness dilemma, is just because we're attempting to cultivate something in the present moment, The idea isn't actually to feel it in the present moment. It's just to train the mind to go that way, right? And when I actually made that switch, I found practices to much much be much more easier for me because I'm not trying to make a feeling as much as I'm trying to train my mind to incline in a particular way. Does that make sense?
3: That makes a lot of sense. Thank you.
0: And then it's like the whole, do I feel it, not feel it, thing just kind of goes away.
1: Very
2: helpful, actually. Hi. So when I first got into my practice, uh, one of the first things that was helpful to me is this ability to sort of uh, let emotions come and go, kind of see their impermanence and uh, and not get caught up in it as much. And then later on, the other thing that um, was helpful is when emotions are really intense. I learned to sit with them, see them without judgment and uh, without attaching too much narrative. Later, and both of those, the combination of the two is really powerful. And then further down uh, in my journey, I had uh, something very uh, hurtful happen to me and the intensity of the emotion was something unprecedented and when i tried to sit with it it was very overwhelming i had to sit with it for days so without on a plane ride it is just and after sitting and sitting it was just fatiguing your body can only viscerally feel so much and so then i was like oh what do i do now should i go back to focusing on the letting go part, okay, this is just impermanent, this is, you know, I shouldn't pay attention to this, Um, and that's where I got confusion arose about what is awareness versus what is repression, and um, what do you do when the intensity is just so high uh, that you, you physically cannot take it. I since then have gone into therapy and learned a few techniques around that, but I was wondering if you had any thoughts with regards to that.
0: Yeah, overwhelm is very real, and I think that we have to understand that, you know, sitting with the emotion isn't always the best strategy, actually. Uh, especially if, if, if it's getting into the arena of overwhelm, uh, it's actually sometimes good kind of to of stop sitting and to actually not try to, like, muscle fluid or whatever. Uh, sometimes it's good to actually go do some healthy distraction or like watch them, you know, do something that takes you away from it. We can't always we can't always be with it. And, and actually it's a derogatory term in our culture, but emotional repression is something that you actually want to be able to learn how to do in certain scenarios. You know, you have to have a uh, very important meeting with your boss and your tendency is to get angry and explode. You might actually have to repress your anger a little bit so you can get through that meeting without getting fired. So it actually comes in handy sometimes. Um, but when it comes to emotional overwhelm, one of the things that we want to do moment-to-moment, we can, is to try to, what they call, hydrate, where it is like, wherever the emotional intensity is, try to identify that. And then try to identify somewhere in your experience where you have a capacity where can you put your attention that's not overwhelming? It might be your hands, it might be sound, it doesn't matter what it is. But something in your experience that you can put your attention on that allows you to feel stabilized, and then you kind of go back and forth. You go, you sit with the emotion until it gets to be close to overwhelm, and then you back out, and you go in. From that they call it, George Haas calls it bear down and back off, or trauma therapy they call it titration but we want to be able to learn that even in the experience of overwhelm. Is there somewhere in my experience where I can put my attention that's going to actually bring the intensity down? And you you can learn that for yourself. There are different things you can do. It doesn't actually matter what it is. It could be looking at the floor. It literally doesn't matter. Any sensory location, you can go, I can pay attention to this, and the anger decreases, right? And then when it gets down to a reasonable volume, you can go back to it. And then and then as you do that, it's like the razor's edge of that gets worn down over time. And at first it's like then ah! it becomes, whoa, it kind of gets duller. But that might take six months or a year. You know, you're not going to do that like on a Tuesday afternoon probably. <laughs> you know, so I think that patience with a lot of this stuff is really important, especially when there's an event, if there's some kind of event that happens that triggers a, a huge emotional kind of flooding into the system, could be a traumatic event, could be a, a, a breakup, it doesn't necessarily matter what it is, but certain experiences in our life will really give us sort of too much than we can handle. And you know, some of start, I got a whole trophy room of those experiences. You know, and so we start collecting them. Uh, and so we want to learn how to practice with them and have some, some patience and some understanding that some of this stuff might take longer than you want it to. Everything usually takes about twice as long as you want it to, I <laughs> Twice as long, not that bad. I think it's gonna be a year be
1: <laughs>
0: Thank you for your question. I do want to respect the time and end on time. If um, you might get some closing announcements, I'll say a few words about Donna. I believe that there's no fee for these classes. Everybody's welcome to attend. Yeah, thank you. Any financial support you give, I do live on the down system. I do appreciate that my family allowed me to participate in the students of surviving on one The offer. And recently unemployed, And so um, most of the work that I do, I teach uh, retreats, and I teach drop-in classes, uh, and that covers a, a portion of my yearly income. So any any financial support that you offer both to, to me and my family and our current costs, and we do live out in the middle of nowhere in Colorado. We live mostly off the land. Uh, we have donkeys and goats and fruit trees and raised flower beds. And so we, we are very careful with uh, all of the money that comes in. So we definitely will spend it wisely. Um, so we thank you for the support you offer. And as is my tradition, I do like to close with a short dedication of Mary, you feel free to join me. You bring your palms together as you wish. And just feeling inward and outward into your heart, mind. And offering this to ourselves and to all of the beings everywhere. May any goodness that has accumulated as a result of our gathering tonight, may any wisdom, compassion, kindness, or generosity that we've experienced here as a result of our time together, we offer that the world. And may all people, all living beings everywhere be free from suffering in this
1: world. Thank you, everybody. Thank you for coming out.